those are going out and we're getting ready to read this psalm, as I said, go ahead and turn to Psalm 94. I want you to think about um, the world in which you live is filled with unspeakable evil. Unspeakable evil. Things that when you hear about these wicked acts or these wicked ideas, it makes you cringe. Evil things in this world. We don't live in uh, La La Land or Mayberry or however you would say that. We live in what the scripture says, uh, this present evil age. In Galatians 1.4, we live in this present evil age. So unspeakable evil, if you just let your mind go there for a moment. Things that make you at least feel things at times like, oh God, God of vengeance, how long, how long, God, can this evil go on? Well, what do we do with stuff like that? What do we do with evil like that? What do we do with feelings like, oh God, come and destroy your enemies? And this psalm should help us with that today. In this psalm, we see a man praying just like that, calling on the God of vengeance to repay the wicked, to repay the proud. And then in this psalm today, we see God actually, through this man, speak something to the oppressors. To the wicked ones that murder the fatherless and harm the widow. We see God through this man speak something to those people. And in this psalm today, we're going to see God give a word of comfort to those that are the afflicted ones. Those that are the oppressed ones. Let's read this psalm together. Psalm 94. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll read the whole thing. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools. When will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge. The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble, until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. For justice will return to the righteous. And all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. 
when I thought my foot slips. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. Let's pray. Father, please help us as we consider this psalm. God, thank you for giving it to us. Your powerful, perfect, and beautiful word. Thank you so much for giving us this psalm. And God, I pray that you help us to be, as we read this psalm, to be conformed into the image of Christ. That you would make us godly in every way. That you would clear up hazy thoughts about who you are, God, and give us clarity on some of your attributes. Lord, whatever we're supposed to feel from this psalm, help us to feel it, Lord. Whatever we're supposed to pray, help us to pray. Whatever we're supposed to do, however we're supposed to respond and act in accordance with this, God, help us to do it. Make us doers of your word and not hearers only. Oh, God, protect us from just hearing your word as background noise. Please protect us. You told us to incline our ears and hear. Lord, incline the ears of our souls this morning. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can break up this psalm into three different parts, as you see there on your study guide. And the first part is verses 1 through 7. And what the writer's doing here is the writer of this psalm is calling on the God of justice to arise and destroy his enemies. God, would you arise and destroy your enemies. It's what many people have called an imprecatory prayer in the midst of an imprecatory psalm. And it's this imprecatory, this idea of calling down the judgment of God, calling down the curses of God. You see that in his prayer at the very beginning. And then at the very end, the way this psalm ends, we just read it. He says, the Lord our God will wipe them out for their wickedness. This is an imprecatory prayer in the midst of this this psalm. And I want us to lean into this because I don't believe this is just some Old Testament relic that they used to pray back then. But here, us, the people of God, under the grace of God, New Testament, New Covenant people of God, I think there's something for us here in Psalm 94. This is not just an Old Testament thing, so please lean in and hear. What we see in the first two verses, we really get the heart and the content of this man's prayer to God. So what attribute of God is he calling upon? What attribute is he, he addressing God with? Well, it's twice it says in verse 1 and verse 2, it says, the God of vengeance. He calls God the God of vengeance. In verse 2, he, he makes it really clear what he's talking about. He says, the judge of the earth. He's calling on God's vengeance. He's calling on God as judge of the earth. He's calling on the justice of God, the God of justice. Now, what's he asking the God of justice to do? 
It says in verse 1, he's saying, God, shine forth. It means, God, illuminate this place and exterminate all darkness. Eliminate darkness from the land. Come shine forth on this earth, Lord. He's asking him, it says, rise up, O judge of the earth. He's saying, God, rise up and judge. And look at that phrase in verse 2. Repay to the proud what they deserve. This psalm is saying, God, avenge us, repay to the proud what they deserve. Now that's not going to be on the top of the charts at Caleb. It's not going to be on your modern Christian radio. And I think part of the reason why is we, we may not fully understand the, these attributes of God and the seriousness of His justice, His vengeance. And so here, God calls the God of vengeance. Now think about vengeance for just a moment. Vengeance is a bad thing, right? Isn't vengeance a bad thing? And I would say to you that vengeance is a bad thing only when it's given into the hands of men. Listen to Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read to you Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You hear that? Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That verse just told us, The vengeance belongs to God, that it goes awry when it's put into the hands of men. Personal accomplishment of vengeance. But God says, vengeance is mine. Now notice the verse does not say vengeance is bad and no one will repay. It says vengeance is mine and I will repay. This thing of vengeance is God's possession. It belongs to him. And this psalmist is calling on the God of vengeance to act upon his vengeance, to act upon his justice. Now, how do we leave vengeance, not on our own personal vengeance, but how do we leave vengeance to God? How do we leave it to the wrath of God? How do we do that? Now, there's different ways, but one way for sure is being shown to us in Psalm 94. In Psalm 94, we're getting a visual of a man that is leaving vengeance to God. We see it in his prayer. We see it in his longing for justice. And at the end of Psalm, we see it in his patience that God will certainly bring ultimate justice. We see a man leaving wrath and vengeance to God. Now, have you ever been provoked to pray a prayer like this? Have you ever been provoked in your heart, provoked in your soul to call out to the God of vengeance to rise up, O judge of the earth, and repay to the proud what they deserve? Have you ever been stirred to pray a prayer like this? And if if not, or if you say, well, hardly ever, or if you say, I think I did, but I don't know if that was right or not. I'm just not sure. If not, if not, if this is not a prayer in your life, why not? Let me ask the question, why not? Why can't we see ourselves praying a prayer like this? Now, I want to offer a suggestion of maybe at least a reason why we may not pray things like Psalm 94. 
And I believe it has something to do with a defective view of God and man. A defective view of God and a defective view of man. Now let me try to explain this from the standpoint of lost humanity. Lost humanity has a defective view of God and they have a defective view of man. It's the reason they can't understand the gospel. You say, what do you mean? Well, they think of God as being way too human. They bring him down. And they think of man as being way too godly. They bring man up. And when you bring God down, he's not really all that just and holy. And you bring man up and he's not really all that bad. What you no longer need is the cross. If God is not just and we're not that sinful, then we don't need the cross of Jesus Christ. But if God is just and we are desperately wicked people, we need a Savior from the just God. But there's a defective view of God and man in lost humanity. They can't see the holy vengeance and justice of God, and they can't see the great wickedness of men. And what the gospel does and what salvation does is obliterate those defective views. The gospel enters into somebody who gets saved. The gospel enters in, and next thing you know, they see God as holy, 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 just God that's going to judge the whole earth, and that includes me one day. And they see themselves as desperately wicked sinners that deserve. Not just they're going to get hell, but they deserve to receive hell. Eternal wrath from God. They deserve that from Him. This is what happens in salvation is they're broken over their sinfulness. And they see, they, they see the just wrath of God. And then suddenly the cross is so beautiful to them. They see the cross as the place where their sin was placed on Jesus. And the cross is the place where God's just wrath was poured out on Jesus instead of me. And they see the cross is so beautiful. Jesus has died for me. And so the gospel enters in and it, and it ruins the defective views of God and man. Now, but hear me out. That's in lost humanity. And that's when a lost person comes to Christ. But here's the thing. Once you're converted you still must push back against defective views of God and man. Like gravity. It's like gravity. There's this constant pull that God is not quite as just as He really is. And this constant pull that man is actually better than the Scripture describes Him to be. There's this constant pull like gravity to bridge that gap between God and man. And so we must push back against it. Now one example of this, I was... Thinking about this week has to do in the way that we protect our children. Anyone here who is a parent or has been a parent for any amount of time, you know that your heart is you want to protect your kids. You love your kids. You want to protect them from evil and wickedness and evil men and women in this world. You want to protect them. And you find yourself, you find yourself maybe one day you hear about some, something that's too detestable to even talk about in our midst about some evil that something has been done towards children, a kid kidnapped or a kid taken away, and what happens in your heart? Your eyes, you, you become sensitive to the wickedness of men and you pull your kids in close. And all of a sudden you find yourself being more protective. And then over time, what happens? Like gravity, you start to forget about the evil of men. 
the wickedness in this world, you forget, you become looser and looser with your parenting, and then one day you hear another story, something happened, so unexpected, nobody expected that evil from that person that did that to that child, and you yank them back in again, you're awakened to the evil of men. And there's this, there's this, this ebb and flow of you understanding, no, no, this is not Mayberry. Everything's not hunky-dory, it's not fine. We live in what the scripture calls the present evil age, and we must push back against defective views of God and of men. Now, here's why I'm telling you this, because if you have a defective view of God and his justice and his vengeance and a defective view of man, he's a lot better than the scripture describes him to be. If that's your view, if it's defective, if it's, if it's not growing to be more biblical, then you will not feel what this psalmist feels, and therefore you will not pray what this psalmist prays. And so I would give that to you, that if you've not prayed these things, if this has not ever been in your heart in Psalm 94, could it be because of a defective view of God and of man? Now, this writer... He's got right views of God. He values justice like God values justice. He has, he's got right views of humanity. Notice, notice what, uh, what provokes him to begin to pray this imprecatory prayer. He has right views of humanity. Notice what provokes him. Look at verse 3. Oh Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? What he's thinking about is the wicked in this earth. What he's thinking about is, verse 2, the proud. In verse 4, he calls them evildoers. In verse 5, he begins to mention their deeds. They crush your people, God. They crush innocent people. Verse 6, they kill widows. Keep going, they murder the fatherless. And he's thinking about this present evil age, and he is provoked to pray the things that he prays here. Now, I would say to you that I think we tend to be apathetic. We have a tendency, a sinful tendency in us all, to be apathetic or even blind to evil and to injustice in this world. But think about this. When this writer looked out on the world, what did he see? What did he see as he looked out on the world? He saw Galatians 1.4. He saw it, this present evil age. He saw Philippians 2.15, this crooked and perverse generation. He wasn't numb to the sinfulness of sin, so he was provoked to pray the things that he prayed here. Now, what about you? What about you? When you look out on the world, what do you see? Are you numb to evil and injustice? Have your tears dried up? Is there no weeping? Is there no more weeping for the afflicted ones? When you look out on the world and you see the evil, has your heart been hardened? So that you can no longer weep. There are real life versions of this. Look at verse 6. Last part of verse 6. They murder the fatherless. Don't you know there's real life versions of this? We can mention tons of things. But listen. They murder the fatherless. This happens in your country 3,000 times a day. When children are murdered and murdered and murdered in abortion. Is your heart cold? Is your heart softened? Do you weep? Or are your tears dried up? Do you have abortion apathy? 
And that's just one example of the murder of the fatherless. The anguish of soul. Think about the anguish of soul in this psalmist here. Is is the anguish of soul in you so much over, for example, abortion, that it moves you past pro-life votes into weeping? Or to call out God, oh God of vengeance, come and do something about this, Lord. God of vengeance, come. This writer was not apathetic. He detested evil and injustice. He hated it, hated it, hated it. Let me ask you this. Do you know that Christians, yes, we're supposed to be growing in our love for Christ, and we're supposed to be growing in our love for each other. God calls us to grow in love, but did you know that we're also supposed to grow in our hatred? Did you know Christians are supposed to be growing in hatred? Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. You who love the Lord hate evil. It's a command from God. Romans 12.9 says, Hate or abhor evil. So Christian, are you growing? I know you, are you growing in your love for Christ? Are you growing in your love for others? Listen to me though. Are you growing in your hatred for sin? And your hatred for evil and your, your, uh, the, the despicable nature of injustice, is it sitting on you like it is on God, like it is on this psalmist here? And I would argue that as your hatred for evil and as your hatred for injustice grows and as you get to know the God of justice, Psalm 94 will be such a help to you. Psalm 94 might even be the prayer of your heart. Now I want to move to the next section. Um, But before I do that, I want to try to cut off two uh, sinful versions of what we're talking about. Let me just try to cut the legs out from under under two uh, sinful versions of what we're talking about. Number one is this. How do you know when your hatred is righteous hatred? How do you know when your hatred is righteous hatred? Hatred. It's when your hatred reflects the hatred of God. That's how you know when your hatred is righteous hatred, when your hatred reflects the righteousness of God. If you were praying imprecatory prayers because you were cut off in traffic, you're probably not doing it right. If you feel a hatred in your soul over the shedding of innocent blood, you're like God. You're becoming like Him. Because Proverbs says that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. And they cry out things like we see here in Psalm 94. And I do want that to be a warning for us. You remember James and John calling down fire from heaven? Remember that? Jesus, you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? Because they didn't give us a place to stay? You know they had scriptural backing, right? They read about Elijah calling down fire from heaven three times. They read about Sodom and Gomorrah and God calling down fire and brimstone. They read about those things, but they're these simplistic Christians, these simplistic men that all they, they get one thing. Okay, fire from heaven, got that. Anybody messes up, we're calling down fire from heaven. And it's wrong. And God says, you don't know what spirit, Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. And so we need to be warned that this can be wrongly applied and not reflect the anger and hatred of God. The second thing I want to cut off here is is this idea that God destroys His enemies in more than one way. Did you know that? 
And this is beautiful. God destroys His enemies in more than one way. He destroys His enemies by sending them to hell forever. And He also destroys His enemies by saving their souls and making them His friends. I've been crucified with Christ. The old man was destroyed. The old is gone and the new has come. You see, God destroys His enemies in more than one way. I was an enemy of God. You and Christ around this room, you were enemies of God. Enemies of His. And the way He destroyed you is to crucify your old man, died for His sins, and brought you into His kingdom. Made you a son and a daughter. So here's what I would say. If in your calling out these imprecatory prayers in this way, if, if you're calling out God, destroy your enemies. God, destroy your enemies. If God decides to do, it, the, do the latter version of that and save their souls, and you don't like that, you're not praying this right. You're not praying this right. You're like Jonas. Remember Jonas? Why didn't, why, why didn't, Jonah, excuse me, why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? Uh, was it because he was scared? No. Was it because he's just being disobedient, had his own pleasures? No. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? What's the deal? He hated those people. And even when God saved him, Jonah hated it and he pouted like a baby. We don't want to be in that category. That's a wrong version of imprecatory prayers. Now let's go to the next section, verse 8 through 11. And what we see here is we get a word. It kind of turns the corner after verse 7. And we get a word addressed to the oppressor. A word addressed to the oppressor. Now, the writer's going to address the, what it calls here the proud. He calls them the wicked. He calls them evildoers in verses 1 through 7. Those who harm the widows, he's looking at them directly, beginning in verse 8 all the way to verse 11. He's looking at those that harm the widows directly, those that murder the fatherless. The, the abortionist and the, uh, the, the rapist and the child mother, he's looking them right in the eye, beginning in verse 8 all the way to verse 11. He's looking at people that say verse 7. Look, look, remember, just remember verse 7. And they say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. That's what they're saying. They're doing what they're doing and they, and they live a life and they're saying, God doesn't see. God doesn't see. I won't be held accountable for what I'm doing because God doesn't see. God doesn't perceive. And in verse 8, he looks right at them. And look at what he says in verse 8. He says, you dullest of people. You foolish ones. When will you be wise? The, the, the New American Standard says, you stupid ones. You stupid ones. I've always said sin makes you stupid. Well, here you go. Sin makes you stupid. It does. And he goes on to say this in verse 9. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? You are saying that, I, that, that God doesn't perceive, that God doesn't see your evil. But listen, he gives an argument from creation, the God that created ears and eyes. You think he doesn't hear you? You think he doesn't see what you're doing? He goes on, he makes an argument from history. He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? You've seen him destroy nations for these things. Don't you think he'll rebuke you too? He keeps going. He who teaches man knowledge. You've got the ESV, you've got a little line there. It's like dot, dot, dot. It's like words fail me. It's, it's like, it's like man, he who made the ear, doesn't he hear? 
He, he who disciplines the nations, won't He rebuke you? And He who gives man knowledge, don't you get what I'm saying? That's what the psalmist does. And this is what he says in verse 11. You say, the Lord does not see, but I say, verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. God not only sees every evil deed, every wicked action, but even the thoughts that began those actions. He sees every wicked thought, every single evil deed. And so what's the point here? What's the point of verse 8 through 11? The point is this, not one sinful deed In fact, not one sinful thought will go unpunished. The God of vengeance is going to leave nothing undone when it's all said and done. Every evil deed, every sinful thought will be punished. The God of vengeance will shine forth, it says in verse 1. The judge of all the earth will rise up, as it says in verse 1. It will happen, that's the point. And nothing's going to be hidden. In that last day, justice will flow. Justice will come. Now, how serious does God take this? How serious does God take this idea of justice that the psalmist is praying for? How big of a deal is this to God? Listen, it's such a big deal that there are only there, there are two ways, and only two ways, that justice is ultimately reckoned. This is how serious this is. That if you come to God one day in your sin, with your sin, nothing's been done with it, here it is. It's in your heart, it's on your record, and you come to God, you will burn in hell forever. The Scripture says torment day and night forever and ever in the lake of fire. The Scripture calls it eternal punishment. Punishment from God that has no end. Hell has no exits, one man said. Now how serious does God take justice on sin? How serious does He take evil? And let me say it another way. This is the second way. How, how else does sin and evil get? I said two ways. What's the other way? What's the other way? And it's the cross. Now we don't typically think of the cross. We typically, we're, we're conditioned to think of the cross of Jesus shows the love of God. And that's true. And it's beautiful. But have you thought about the cross of Jesus that shows the justice of God? The vengeance of God? The wrath of God? You say, what do you mean? Listen, God hates your lies. He hates your sin. He hates your wickedness and your deceit and your lust and, and your murder. And He hates it all. He hates that sin. How serious is He about hating evil? When that sin was placed upon His Son at the cross, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And He's so serious about this that when that sin is placed upon Jesus at the cross, He moves in holy wrath and pours out indignation on His Son. Justice is a serious thing to God. And verse 8 through 11 tells us none of it is going, in a, no, none of it is hidden. None of it is getting past his eyesight. He sees it all. Now, this next section is a large section, verse 12 through 23, the end of the psalm. Really, he turns the corner here in a really big way. And, and now. Now we have this real encouragement towards the oppressed. You know, he's given a word to the oppressor. Now he's going to give some encouragement to, uh, to the oppressed. Now you really could split this into two parts. And let me explain that really quickly. You could split that into two parts. You could say verse 12 through 15 
is the more general encouragement. He says in verse 12, blessed is the man. So just in general, the man. Blessed is the man. Okay? General encouragement. And then you get to verse 16 through 23, and you get a real personal encouragement. He says, who rises up for me? For me. So you have a general encouragement to the oppressed in verse 12 through 15 and verse 16 and on. You get a personal testimony. And for the first time we see, in verse 16, for the first time we realize that this writer of the psalm is one of the afflicted ones. He's one of those being being oppressed. So let's go back to verse 12. Verse 12 says, blessed. Blessed. Now, now he's, he's talking about the afflicted ones. How could he say blessed? You know, Jesus did this over in Matthew 5, right? Jesus said, blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled and they say all kind of evil things about you for my name's sake. Blessed are you. How can, how can we call blessed these people that are under the suffering of injustice like this? How can the psalmist say blessed? And the reason is because God is at work. God is at work in these afflicted ones. Even in the midst of their affliction, God is at work. Listen to it in verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. (laughs) So these wicked men think they're doing something, but they're just like tools in God's hand, doing things in the people of God. God is using even them for His glory. They're like puppets in His hands. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest. Oh, they're blessed. To give him rest from the days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Genesis 50. This is, a, this is kind of like Genesis 50, verse 20. Remember, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, dug a pit, threw him in it, sold him into slavery, ruined his life. And in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph says, What you meant... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You meant evil against me, but God actually meant it for good. Now that's an encouragement for the oppressed, is it not? Those that are suffering under evil and injustice, here's this encouragement. But even that, even that is being used for your good and for God's glory. Trust Him. Trust Him. And then there's more encouragement. If you look at the end of verse 13, the phrase we just read, it says, until a pit is dug for the wicked. Consider that visual for a minute. That there's wicked, the wicked, the evildoers, to do wicked things that are going to go to hell forever. Their pit is being dug by God right now. The shovel has hit the ground. And it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And when it's deep enough, their life will be taken from them and they'll go to hell forever. Until the pit is dug for the wicked. So the psalmist is crying out in verse 3, How long, Lord? And God says, I'm digging their grave right now. I'm digging the pit right now. And then you get this encouraging promise in verse 14. Look at it. For the Lord will not forsake His people. He will not abandon His heritage. Listen, when you are under oppression like this, you feel so abandoned. And God said, I will not abandon you. I will not abandon you. Another promise in verse 15, for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Justice will return. Writer of the psalm, that thing you're asking for from me, it is a guarantee. It's not if justice will return, but when it will come, justice will return. 
all things will be set right. And this is meant to be a huge encouragement. If you could put yourself in the shoes of the oppressed, these words are meant to be a huge encouragement to them. Now, in verse 16, as I said, the writer turns personal. He starts saying me now. We realize that he's actually one of the afflicted ones. And look at what he says in verse 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? Now what's he communicating here? He's looking around and he sees nobody with him. Nobody's standing up with him. Nobody has risen up with him against the evildoers. What's he expressing in verse 16? He's expressing loneliness. That he feels alone in this battle. He feels alone in this war. He feels like he's all alone. And oftentimes, afflicted people are. There's many reasons for that. One reason for that can be the apathy of the unafflicted ones. The lackadaisicalness of the, those that are unaffected. But he's expressing that he feels alone in this. Where's the one that would stand up with me? Where's the one that would rise up for me? He feels alone, but is he alone? Is he alone? In the next three verses, 17, 18, and 19, tell us he is not alone. Listen to this encouragement to the afflicted. Verse 17, if the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. I'm not alone. Seems like I'm alone, but I'm not alone because my Lord is with me. And if he had not been my help, I would be dead in silence. Says the same thing pretty much in a different way in verse 18. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When you're in affliction like this, you're going to have those thoughts and those feelings. My feet are slipping, my feet are slipping, but your love, O Lord, holds me up. It says something similar in verse 19. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. That's what happens with the afflicted ones. The, care, the cares of their heart are many. The version I memorized it in years ago says, In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. You see, afflicted ones feel this multitude of thoughts and multitude of anxieties within them. I heard somebody describe it like a tree in a storm. A strong tree, its roots are down deep, the trunk is there, steady and still, and the storm is blowing in. And there, the tree's just fine. But it's as if the branches don't know it. The branches are moving around, around like crazy. And this is like our thought life. And all we need to do is look back down at the root. Look back down at the trunk. His comforts delight my soul. In the midst of my anxieties within me as an afflicted one, Jesus whispers sweet things that comforts my soul. Look at verse 20. He's still encouraging these people with personal testimony. And in verse 20 and 21, we kind of see what this man is up against. What is this man up against here? Look at verse 20. Can wicked rulers be allied with you? Those who frame injustice by statute? So now we're not just talking about wicked people doing wicked things and injustices coming down on the oppressed. We're not just talking about that. We're talking about rulers, authorities. Kings and governments. And it says here they're framing injustice by statute. Statute. That it's in the law. That the injustice is actually legalized. They're doing this wicked thing. Look at what this man is up against. Look at verse 21. They band together 
against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. They condemn the innocent to death. Now think about what this man is up against. He's up against something and he sees the rulers around him, the wicked around him, framing injustice by law, condemning the innocent to death. It's what he sees around him. And when I read that verse, I cannot help but jump to our modern day and think about our country and our state and our laws. Abortion, if you let me mention it for a moment, abortion is the murder of a child in God's image. It's the murder of an innocent child in God's image. In 1966, the very first state to legalize abortion, the very first state in the United States of America legalized abortion from the, for the first time. You know what state that was? It was Mississippi. 1973, the infamous Roe versus Wade decision, and since then, 60 million babies, you can't even contain that number, 60 million babies slaughtered 3,000 every day in our abortion place in Jackson here, the pink house, the so-called pink house, at least 50 babies murdered every single week. Unfathomable injustice. I hope you grieved recently when you saw the New York Senate clapping and cheering and celebrating because they extended the age at which they can murder their children. I hope you threw up when you heard the governor of Virginia answer this question recently. He's talking about, with these laws, if a baby, if a baby is uh, accidentally born in the midst of an abortion procedure, and here's his words that should make you throw up. The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's, the, if that's what the mother and father desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Discussing what? You see this evil? And it, and it, makes, and it makes you sick. And so verse 21, that they condemn the innocent to death. It's happening in our day and it happened in this psalmist's day. They frame injustice by statute. It's a reality in his land and in our land. So that's what we're up against. Now that doesn't sound very encouraging. I thought this was, I thought this was personal and testimony that's encouraging. Because this doesn't sound very encouraging. Well, look at the next two verses. Look at verse 22. But the Lord has become my stronghold. Remember he said, God, can wicked governments be allied with you? The answer is obviously no, but I'm allied with you. They can't be your ally, the ones that I'm up against, but, but I'm your ally. He says, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. So you see what we're up against, and yet you have this encouragement that the God of vengeance will come. The God of glory will destroy all His enemies, and all will be made right. Now, what, what do we need to do with all this? So Psalm 94, we're talking about it. What do we need to do with Psalm 94? So, we've seen something in Psalm 94 about, uh, from the perspective of God... In the way he views evil and injustice. Okay, we see something about God and the way he views evil and injustice. Okay, 
And we've seen something uh, towards the oppressor. We've seen a word to the oppressor. Okay? And we've also seen an encouragement to the oppressed ones, the afflicted ones. We've seen an encouragement there. But do we have anything here from the perspective of the bystander? Do we have anything in this psalm from the perspective of the bystander? What I mean is he's, he's not the one that's being oppressed, at least in this sense. He's not being oppressed in this way, he or she. And, and he or she is not the oppressor. He's just sort of, a, sort of the bystander here. Is there anything here, and, and most of us would fit into this perspective, is there anything for us from our perspective of not the oppressed ones, but not the oppressors, just the bystanders on this planet, is there anything here for us? And the answer is yes. Look back at verse 16. I want you to try to hear. Hear the afflicted ones, please. Hear the desperate question, the desperate cry coming from the mouth of the afflicted one and see if it moves you. Look at verse 16. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against the evildoers? Let the question ring in your ears. Let the question dig down into your heart and your motives and your actions. Who rises up for me? You see the wicked in the land. Who rises up? Who stands up? And what would it look like for you to rise up, it says, against the wicked on behalf of the innocent? What would it look like? Proverbs 31, verse 8 and 9. I'll give you some insight. It says, listen, it says, open your mouth for the speechless. In the cause of all of those who are appointed to die, open your mouth and judge righteously and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Listen to that command. Open your mouth and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Rise up against the wicked on behalf of the afflicted. What would it look like for you to stand up, as it says here, stand up against evil, against injustice, against the shedding of innocent blood? Proverbs 24, verse 11 and 12. It says, listen, it says, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say our eyes didn't see it, does God not see? God says that you will be held accountable for what you know, what you've seen. So the call here, I believe, for bystanders like so many of us is who will rise up for the wicked? Against the wicked, for the innocent. Who will stand up against them? Now let me close with two warnings and an exhortation. Two quick warnings in closing. Two quick warnings and an exhortation. Number one, this is a warning here. Brothers and sisters in Christ whom I love, beware of apathy. Beware of of apathy, it means um, apathy is not feeling or not suffering. You can't weep with those who weep. It's the idea of the word. Beware of apathy. Now, I want to let a guy named Hilmer von Kamp, if I'm saying his name right, I want to let him speak against our apathy. This is a German man with a thick German accent. And get this, he was a Hitler youth. Wore the uniform and everything. Fought in Hitler's army. Uh, 
during, the, during this time, during uh, Nazi regime, all those things. He wrote a book called Defeating the Totalitarian Lie. And I want you to hear just a few of the things he says. I'm going to read a couple different spots here. And let this speak to any apathy. It spoke to me. The persecution of the Jews began in 1933, right after the Nazis came to power, kicked off with a Nazi campaign that prohibited Germans from buying anything from a Jewish business. Stormtroopers took up positions in front of Jewish stores and prevented potential customers from entering. Slowly but systematically, our Jewish citizens were marginalized and stripped of their rights. Later on, all Jews had to publicly identify themselves with a yellow star of David on their clothing. All of this was very cruel and dehumanizing. Quite a number of these Jews were officers and soldiers who risked their lives fighting for Germany in World War I. Listen to this. Every German saw this discrimination of a helpless minority and knew what was being done. There was no outcry by the churches. There was no protest in the streets. Nor is there any resistance by society. It's an appalling story of a nation of cowards and apathetic appeasers, which to my shame, I was part of. Even as a boy, I do not remember ever hearing our church make any reference to the blatantly brutal and godless treatment of the Jewish people. He says in another place, The Jews literally became non-persons similar to unborn babies in America, and became subject to the ghastly consequences I described earlier. The result was the Holocaust, one of the modern world's most shocking manifestations of contempt for human life. He says again in another place, the Nazis could only exercise their evil deeds because of the millions of bystanders who were mostly concerned with themselves and loved safety more than what was right. And one more. The Nazis legally declared the Jews to be non-persons and then murdered them. The Supreme Court of the United States legally legally declared the unborn human being to be a non-person and set the stage for their legalized mass murder and called it abortion. Abortion is not the only thing that we should think of when we think of Psalm 94, but it's certainly one, and it's certainly a ghastly one. And I want to encourage you to ask yourself, take home question, take home question, do you have apathy to repent of? Second warning, beware of hiding from evil and injustice. Now, what I don't necessarily mean is you see an injustice over there, and you get fearful and you hide away and you run away. I don't necessarily mean that, although that's, that's evil as well. But what I mean is more like, this is my warning from Isaiah 58. Listen to this. Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not this the fast that I, cho- that I choose? Listen to what he says in Isaiah 58. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the straps of the yoke. To let the oppressed go free. To break every yoke. I love how Job said, he broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Very similar. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him? And then listen to this last phrase. This is what I mean. 
and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. What does it mean? In the context of this, seeing the gruesome and nasty and horrific things that are all around us in this present evil age, we see it, and there's a way that we can build walls around us that the only thing on our mind is us and our comfort, us and our safety. And this says that if we do that, we'll be hiding ourselves from our own flesh. And so I want to warn us not to do that. And I want to give you a word from R.C. Sproul that speaks to that. R.C. Sproul said something, or he said this, Abortion is a phenomenally grisly business. Like the doctrine of hell, I think abortion is something you cannot look at too closely for too long, or it will literally drive you mad. When we consider what goes on 3,500 times every day, and we think about the preciousness of little babies and the innocence of these children, you can't, you can't look at it too closely. But what we can and should do is push ourselves to look closer and closer and closer to get into the horror so it stops being merely some important political issue that, we might, that might influence our vote. This needs to be something that keeps us awake at night. Let me close with this exhortation. An exhortation here. And my exhortation is to look to Jesus And all this stuff, look to Jesus, look to Christ, who died for apathy, the sin of apathy, died for all of our sins at the cross. Look at what He did. Look at who He is and look at what He did and imitate Him. He's the ultimate example. Think about Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. It says this about Jesus, about Jesus. He loved righteousness and hated wickedness. You say, man, I want my love and my hatred to increase and grow like it ought to. Well, look to Christ. Look to Christ. And the more you see His love and His hatred, you're going to become more like Him. Look to Christ. He left comfort to get in our skin and rescue us by dying. He laid down His life for others. Look to Him. Look to Him, and the more you see Him, the more you'll be like Him. 2 Corinthians 3.18, it said, as we take up the Word of God, and we look, and we look, and we look, and we behold in the Word of God, we behold as in a mirror the glory of Jesus the Lord, we'll be transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. So my exhortation, brothers and sisters, is to look to Christ. I hope this psalm is a help to you, and let's pray that the Lord helps us with it. Father, thank you again. I want to thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray that you would make us more like Christ. Conform us to the image of Christ. God, I pray that you would make us people that hate evil and hate injustice and rest in your goodness, Lord, and and, and rest even in your ultimate justice that you'll bring. God, teach us how to pray rightly things like this. Teach us how to feel what the psalmist felt. More than that, Lord, teach us how to feel what you feel. Lord, please be our help. Help us to respond to that question, who will rise up? Who will rise up for the weak against the wicked? God, I pray that you would make us those that answer that call. 
Help us, God, to rescue those being taken away to death. Help us, Lord, to open our mouth for the speechless and plead the cause of the poor and needy. Help us, God, to give our lives, to put ourselves in harm's way to love and care for others. Help us, Lord, to do that. Make us like you, in Jesus' name. Amen.